0: Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And if that is you, welcome. It's a pleasure to be spending a little bit of time with you today. And you're actually, if you have any interest in getting a little bit geeky, if you're getting interested in getting a little nerdy around property data, then you're going to love this episode. I was joined today by a guy named Kent Lardner. He's a legend in the game. He's He's been instrumental in, in so many uh, aspects of the property industry from a data perspective that we now take for granted. Things like automatic valuation systems and all kinds of different stuff. He's even done a bunch of work internationally uh, on this topic as well. So he's a hugely knowledgeable guy when it comes to thinking about property data statistical data and how we can actually use that uh, to make to inform our property investing choices now the better the information you have the better you have a chance of success so he's doing some great work on that front now I had a lot that I wanted to talk to Kent about that I had for, prior to the episode I had prepared a whole list of questions I was going to dig into uh, with him but uh, we started out actually really going wildly off piece but I think you're gonna love it we started talking about you know valuing properties in china and all kinds of stuff we talked about why you should look at sa3 areas and what they are when you're making your decisions we talked about some of the drivers of growth and where we see the property market going over the next year so there's a lot of ground to cover in this episode and and i highly recommend you listen to it all the way through Kent is a is a very uh, interesting guy to talk to. Um, we do go very nerdy on this, which is very apt because uh, he one of his businesses is called the Property Nerds. There'll be a link in the show notes to all of that kind of stuff. So, without any further ado, oh, before we jump into the episode, I always forget this. If, before we jump into the episode, please make sure you subscribe, like, share, do all the good stuff because if this is valuable to you, it's probably going to be valuable to somebody else. And our mission is to transform as many uh, lives through property investing as possible. So. Please help us do that. And look, if you want to connect with us direct, just head to dash.com.au or theinvestorlab.com.au. Reach out to us, get access to heaps of free resources, tools, guides, all kinds of different stuff to expand and ex- accelerate your property investing journey. So without any further ado, let us get stuck right on into it. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. hey guys welcome back to the investor lab joining me today is a property data expert a self-confessed property nerd and also a, a an industry professional of many many years with a lot of stories to tell we're going to dig into a lot of really interesting stuff today it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the show kent lardner kent how are you
1: i'm really well thank you for inviting
0: me goose mate it's an absolute pleasure so look um, you and I have been conversing a little bit before we've chatted on the phone. We've kind of talked about data. I've been watching what you've been doing with some of the stuff like suburb trends and 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 obviously now with the, the, the property nerds. We're going to dig into all of that stuff in a little moment. But before we sort of go there, um, I'm going to assume that most of the people listening to this podcast have no idea who you are. And before we start delving into – you know some really interesting stuff. We're going to be digging into the data and talking about some suburbs and areas and all of this kind of stuff. Why don't you give us a little bit of an understanding around what's your pedigree? Why should anyone care? Who are you? Why should we listen to you?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully they care just a little bit. But uh, I started to focus on property data back in oh, probably 1999 when I was working in a lenders mortgage insurance company called Genworth Financial. Yep. and. At that time, we were processing several hundred property valuations a day. And this was in the early days before a lot of the data was readily available. So you still, you had APM and you had Residex out there and had a few companies out there providing uh, information, but uh, I still needed more. And uh, so as a result of that, one of the things we decided to do was they coached me up on how to build automated valuation models, AVMs. So they sent me off to Canada, they sent me to the US to meet all these Fascinating uh, old blokes, and sent me back to school. So I studied statistics and really learned how AVMs worked, and then that launched it for me. So I found my fascination was more in the data and the analytics, analytics and the ability to apply that in a, in a product or a, a use case, rather than a fascination with the property itself. And and it's quite interesting because I work with a lot of people like yourself who are fascinated with the property or fascinated with the investment itself, I'm fascinated with the property data. Mm. Um, So from there, I went from from that particular uh, company after several years, uh, I moved over to a company called Pricefinder. So it was a new startup. Um, We were looking to compete against uh, a company called RP Data, who uh, dominated the play. Yeah, um, yep. So we created PriceFinder or designed the price estimate tool and a whole stack of functionality there with with the broader team, and um, we really took it to the leader. Um, can, I, can, can I can
0: I ask was that because that's now part of Domain, right? It is. It is. Was that part of Domain then, or was that just a startup where you well, were just out it was to just a conquer start-up. the startup?
1: So I was approached by a couple of members of the Ray White family, and they said, yep. hey, can you can you help us? We want to build some unique." Features. Back then, AVMs had a mystique and a magic about them, so we, we included it uh, strategically. We made a call to say, hey, let's include it in our standard package, our standard subscription, and get noticed. Uh, and it helped. So we, you know, we built that up, and we got a good subscriber base, and then that business subsequently sold. Um, and then from there, I launched into and went into uh, CoreLogic, and I was heading up their banking platforms and analytics team. Mm-hmm. And um, and then from there, uh, I was approached by a, a lovely bunch of people from China who wanted to create the RP data of China. So they got me up into China. So I was travelling back and forth into China for close. How did you
0: find? How did you find the um, the differentiation then between the 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 data sets? Because what what I would imagine, and what I would imagine is that Australia and the US have probably relatively similar data sets as in terms of the way they index the information and what they're, what they're doing. Was there a similarity in, in the, the types of info or was it like, were you trying to essentially learn learn a new language?
1: Every country is very different. Um, But what I I would say is um, China has a lot of similarities with a lot of other high density Asian countries. In, in uh, And so I'll, I'll go into that in a little bit, but the US is top of the tree in terms of its data set. I'll, I'll simplify it and say, one of the most amazing things they have is the square foot or the, you know, the living area as a, mm-hmm. as a metric. Whereas what Australia has got uh, is good sales data and we've got attributes in bed bath parking, but our uh, floor plan information is a bit patchy and it's very hard to use any data set that's not population level. So you need it really for every generally you need it for every property that that's going to enter the modelling. So that was the difference between the U.S. and, and Australia. But when we come to China, that there was a real challenge in identifying the single source of truth as to what the sale price was. And ultimately, what we found is the most reliable value was the per square foot or per square meter advertised rate on the listing. So the public listing became our most reliable source. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then you could patch that in with other sales records that might have come through the banks for example or through the appraisal company so can i can i just ask a question on that so what
0: you've what you've said there was that uh in china the most reliable and accurate metric for the value of a property was essentially the listed sale price
1: was little was the advertised listing price so the square foot okay. there but there was a catch the catch was you didn't know what the individual unit number was you knew what the built the strata block was or the apartment building and you knew what floor it was on but you didn't they didn't divulge the actual unit number so it's quite interesting so in australia for example there's a small percentage of agents that might list the property and don't divulge the address yeah in china all they do is they'll, they'll divulge the apartment building that it's in what building what floor that's it so you don't know what way it's facing you don't know i know you and, will know aspect you'll know north or you know north. so aspect is a big feature uh, is there photos there's photos okay so, there's total floor area and, and so why does it why does it matter what number it is then well that's an interesting point the only reason why it would ultimately matter And as that applies and is used in models in Australia and the US by comparison uh, is the historical information. So if you don't know the exact unit number, you 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 wouldn't match it to a prior record that's sitting in the database that says this last rented or this last sold for whatever five years ago or how many years ago. And that indexation approach is a pretty solid methodology widely used in the Western markets, but we couldn't use that in China. So does that mean you couldn't determine average growth rates? You can, but you're doing it a slightly different way. You're doing it the typical way you're using medians.
0: Okay. And I've got another question on the, um, um, I didn't realize we were going to jump into this podcast and start talking about Chinese, Chinese real estate. This is great. Here we are. Here we are. Um, Okay, so what you're saying is that the most reliable um, valuation metric that you could do in an automated valuation sense not the in you know, a in a you know was the market advertised rate
1: with what we could access. Now, right. if you could access, uh, if the government the government is looking and planning and has been planning along. Yeah, the yeah,
0: way. but at that time, at that time, but at not, that, not that time, I said. So that's so an so interesting point, right? Because there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people in Australia. Who um say things like, Oh, it's impossible to buy under market value because whatever the property sells for, that's the market value. So how do you how do you position that? Because in that in that sense, then like does whatever it's listed for is whatever it sells for, is that actually what it's just is that the only way that we can ever know what it's worth? Or 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 can you how do you come on? Yeah. Yeah let's dig, dig into that. Let's go.
1: The opening statement was it's really hard to know what the source of truth is. So do you is the sale price that you get, is that the sale price that they're giving the government to pay their stamp duty uh, or pay their taxes, or is that, is that the price that they're giving uh, to somebody else? So sometimes you don't really know what the accurate accurate single source of truth as to what that final sale price was. That was always a challenge. What
0: about always. here in Australia? What about applying that, 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 that thinking to That's, here in Australia?
1: Yeah, so, what are we, so the question is how do we know if I'm buying below market or, or has it been a wood duck sale? Yeah. You know, because people are paying it over the odds, which is happening in regional Australia where people are exiting Sydney and they're paying 10% over the odds. And that's I mean. driving the market up. So the question ultimately is: Well, was the price ten percent lower because that was the valuation that was truly put on it by a local, or was the, was is the price the inflated ten percent price because it was purchased by an out of, out of town Sydney sider with extra money in their pocket? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting question, and I don't I almost have to argue. Well, it's the price paid, whether it's overpaid or underpaid, the price paid. Is, is what enters your model.
0: Okay, but if you were when you're um, when you're looking at a property, if you can we'll get into the accuracy of AVMs I'm sure, yeah. but like if if let's just assume, let's just assume for a moment that an AVM or an automated uh, valuation model, right, yeah. is is let's just say it's accurate, right? And so yeah. let's ju- let's just say that you um, use one of these AVMs, so CoreLogic or or any any other ones, and you look at a property and, and the AVM says with a very high degree of accuracy that it's worth $300,000. Yes. And then you managed to go and buy it for $250,000. Yep. That's that's good. Have you just lowered the market value of it, or have you just bought a fifty grand under market value?
1: Well, well what it means is you've normally got a you've got a dispersion or a, a range that the AVM will work upon based yeah, on the yeah. data that it's playing with, and the sales and the comps that it's playing with. So, but the, typically as a, as a as a nice unbiased estimator, the AVM, if the AVM is calculated without using the listing price, then it's a good unbiased estimator of the average market. So that's the way to think about it. So you don't know necessarily if that AVM provider has actually used the listing price and fed it back in. How would you know? How would you know? Let's say we let's
0: say you were using RP data, which is yep. kind of the industry standard.
1: Yep. Um, the, the tip, some methodologies. Now, everyone's got their own approach to this. One methodology is you take the listing price, and they call it the cheater model, and nobody can ever beat the cheater model. So what you do is you take the listing price, and you feed it back in, and then you run the algorithm within a range around that listing price. So you're still pulling in comps, and it's still influenced by the other sales that are happening around it, but your starting point is actually influenced. so there is a bias from get go because you've used the listing price.
0: Tidy, but hang on a second. You're just talking about feeding algorithms. Is this something that you can only do if you're working for RP Data and you're in the data science division or something like that? How would I, this work in real time?
1: Yeah, look, most most I'm t- kind of talking about how would you know? And, how would you and, know? Yeah, and and the question really would be the only way to truly find out if you weren't inside would be to look at the distribution of errors. Now what you want is to see if these is did that price or here's a simple way. If if I could see what the AVM was the week before it listed for sale, mm. and then when it lists for sale, that price dramatically changes up or down in the AVM, that would tell me. So you'd almost have to kind of go through and and for do 13 and a half million properties, <laughs> 13.5 million AVMs and store them and then watch for the ten thousand that get listed next week
0: why did you say 13 and a half million what is that number specific
1: residential typically how many residential dwellings that that would exist in the uh, geocoded national address file okay
0: so so that's roughly how many properties exist in australia right now residential properties exist take, right. yeah. yeah i'm not going to pin you down to that Yep. Yeah. okay awesome so if you could if you had a I'm going a little tangential here cuz I like, I like this. but if you had if you had a process where you could generate all of those AVMs consistently yep. and create a his, historical record of every AVM consistently over time and see what the statistical variations would be and then let's just say it got listed for let's say 30% above the the AVM and then then you could then go and if you had this if you had the capacity to do it you could then go and uh either reference the prior to listing one and go well that's probably what the value actually is um i'm not going to pay any more than that or would you then go and take the the advertised price again and feed that back into the algorithm again
1: well you know what i'd go old school on this my approach to it is you do a cma you know your comparable market analysis you look at the property and then you do a radius search around it and you handpick The comparable properties and that's very hard to beat because that's how valuers work and that's how most real estate agents work so i think the ultimate approach to any challenging an avm is the old school appraisal The
0: the problem the problem that i see though with um with cmas or or the manual appraisals and this is something that I've seen and it's something that I'm aware of with myself. Cause obviously, you know, I do CMAs myself and have a look yeah. at the actual market. The problem is it's, it's so subjective, you know, because, you know, I might think one property is better than another property. I might look at it and be like, it's nicer. It's got better. It looks better. inside. But it's my opinion. So then you start to overlay opinion bias against it. Right.
1: Well, that, and that sums up the whole conundrum that we're talking about here is, is there's biases all the way through, you know, there's a, a bias at the time when it's originally listed because the agent that wins the listing has go- is likely to have a tendency to overquote it, yeah, to yeah. Prom- promise a little bit higher price because who am I going to pick? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna pick the person that's gonna give me 10% more. Whether they sell it or not, it's a different thing. But when when the tide's increasing and when prices are going up, those people are winning. Yeah. Yeah, they're winning the listing and they're getting semi close to their overpromised mark therefore they're the ones winning the race um so there's a bias from the outset and that bias continues all the way through the thing that the banks love about abm's is it it, the there is a, a an assumed lack of bias it's a it's a normal distribution of errors that's the assumption that they like
0: so you touched on an interesting thing there about banks and banks and AVMs. What now? Do they all use different? Uh, I know that you had a little hand in an, in a, in a lot of the banking platform AVMs somehow, somewhere yeah. along the way. Yes. Do different banks use different AVM algorithms? Like, could you like? Why is it? Why is it that sometimes, if you wanted to get a refinance, it, it pays to actually shop it around to different lenders?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. It's true. Like each each lender has their own. Uh, panel of appraisers or Mm. valuers so typically the avm is selected based on maximum loan amount maximum lvr and uh, location risk and then overlaying with that avm performance so there you kind of your your simplified array of rules that would dictate when an avm can be used so low risk i'll use it so typically what a, a bank would do a sophisticated bank would use what they call a cascade they'll pick two or more providers, and they'll they'll join them together. They do that in some different approaches, different ways. So usually mm. it's you know, a simplified approach might be first past the post. The, the one with the most accuracy historically is the one I'll use. Mm. Others might blend them together based on their accuracy. Uh, others might say if A agrees with B, then okay. So there's different ways you can approach that cascade.
0: Yeah, okay. All right. That's good. I want to move on from AVMs now because I know that you've got an, another interesting project happening right now. So you've done all this kind of stuff. You've worked with all of these bigger businesses, RP Data. You've done. You've been involved in startups. Sounds like you're pretty entrepreneurial in nature. Um, what do you? What's this latest project? Uh, that that what's? I understand what it is. It's a it's a new property research platform essentially. Talk to that for a minute, but also tell me why. Like, why do you actually feel like that? That's what Australia needs.
1: Yeah, so what, what I've got is I've got my own business specifically, which is uh, Suburb Trends, which is very much devoted to data and content for enterprise for businesses. So that's, got that's, it. that's that's it. So what I did is I split out of that the investor side of it because I wasn't doing the investor side of it as well as somebody like Arjun who I've, who I've partnered with there with mm-hmm. the Property Nerds. So I've split that out. So the, the investor research side of it has gone over and that is the Property Nerds. Got it. So, so that's, that's the background. So if you hear the two names, Suburb Trends, which is me, that's very much me supporting a number of enterprise clients that I've got uh, in a consulting capacity, either you know, helping them design their software, helping them with data or anything in between. Uh, equally creating content. So I create content so a lot of the uh, companies that create websites, for example, for real estate agents or buyers agents that need suburb profiles, et cetera, I spin up nice charts and content you can build a nice suburb profile and plug that into your website. Yep, so it's yep. kind of content and data is the suburb trend stuff uh, for the for businesses, for the for the investor class, that's the property nerds. Got it. Okay. So
0: Obviously our the main thrust of this podcast, everything we do is around uh, is around investors as well. And yes. and of course, you know, the, the goal of this podcast and everything that we do is help is to help people to to ultimately live a better life, achieve more freedom, choice, and abundance in their life. And ultimately that's gonna come through putting wealth. So what are the in your experience in having traversed this very data centric side of the industry? Yes. What are some of the key, like we all, there's so many people out there that will have different ideas on what constitutes, what's going to be a good area. Oh, it's got to be near the ocean or it's got to be in, uh, you, you know, you would only analyze it on a on a street level basis or a suburb level basis is fine or, um, you know, don't buy in flood zones, which I agree with. But, you know, like there's all these kind of like things that get thrown around and it honestly gets really confusing for a lot of people. It does. So, what, what, are the, what are the key characteristics or what are the key metrics that you think people need to pay attention to the most when they're trying to make an intelligent investment decision?
1: Well, I what I do is I like to use uh, an area called a statistical area three when I'm doing a lot of my trend analysis. So, yeah. so that's similar to a, a local government area um and I, I analyze about 350 of those around the country
0: can i just ask i want to stop you there right so because a lot of people you know will understand local government area lga right it's basically their council right yep. how does that differ from an sa3 a statistical area three what, what and 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 why don't you and why do you focus on that as opposed to uh suburbs or just lgas
1: so the statistical area three, I'll just call it SA three for now, uh, defined by the Australian Bureau of Statistics (ABS). And the beauty of their approach to it is they've taken a statistical approach to it, where local government areas are not really—that's not their 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 um, MO. So effectively, what we what I do is I use these statistical areas that are generally similar in size and the best example i can give if you pick on and if you like to use lgas then i'll point you to uh, brisbane lga and i'll point you to the gold coast lga they are huge they are cities in their own right so if you look at an sa3 you can then carve up brisbane into several sa3s so that's that's the main reason the other reason why i like it is I can bring in a lot of ABS data that's a perfect plug-and-play and fits within that SA3 framework. Uh, another example is um you know small area labor markets it is published by an Lga level but it's not as robust over time because a lot of lgas merge and you need to go through that adjustment process it's whereas, political right the, the the lines often get drawn on political yeah, so there's, there's a lot of movement around as to what the boundary is whereas the sa threes whilst they can change they're a lot more stable through time so i've I've used SA3s for all of those statistical reasons.
0: All right. I'm going to push this a little bit further before we move on. Why – you have fair reasoning behind why not why not LGA and why SA3, but why not – why not um, what's smaller than SA3? Does it
1: go five or one? What, do, no, SA2s are great. So I, I use SA2s. Yeah. Um, so what they do is they – like, let's pick on the ABS approach. They, the smallest area that they divulge the census information is called an SA1. That's their – They've got something smaller than that called a mesh block, but it's too small because if there's 20 odd houses that they're going to divulge income levels for, it's too close to uh, identifying people and divulging personal information. So the smallest area that they're comfortable to divulge all of that census information is called an SA1. Um, So that's, you know, there's about 55,000 of those across the country. And then it builds up. It builds up SA1, fits into an SA2, you know, et cetera. Um, Now, SA2, I'm, I'm just general speaking here, it's about two to three suburbs big. Um, So, SA2s can be quite, can be very, very handy. But the problem that I still found, and I did a lot of work at the SA2, looking at that as my holy grail for a while until I drew the conclusion that SA3s were the better place to do my modeling. And the reason why I say that is is the distribution. It's just a, a much more normal distribution when you get up to that larger sample size
0: of an t- So i you're talking about statistical distribution okay so a different way to think about that and something that might paint a different picture for people to understand it, it, the way to think the way that i would think about that is so for example if you said to someone a lot of people we we buy in re- major regional centers as well as capitals but a lot of people think regional and they think regional could be a tiny country town now if you look at a tiny country town versus uh, let's say bendigo is a major regional center and then I I don't know, um, know, Mujigonga West or something like that as like a, a small country town. What you tend to find in country towns, tiny, small ones, because they're they're statistically less volume, median prices will be a lot more volatile. All you need is like one person who'll pay a lot for a specific property and all of a sudden you can look at the data and it'll say, oh my God, the median prices in this area have gone up by 50% in three months. And you can get get, it's quite misleading, but it's also very volatile. So what you're talking about is having enough statistical weighting that all of those little kind of nuances and volatilities kind of smoothen themselves out and give you a good distribution of info. Is that
1: fair? Bingo. Perfect. So effectively what we're doing is are ripping out the noise. Yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. Makes sense. So, so when, you, when you're trying to build a model and you're trying to fit some trend lines and whatnot, you want to remove all that noise. And that noise can be made up of compositional bias. If there's a whole stack of new properties that sell, prices go up. And then when they sell, prices come down. I don't want that in my model. I want the true growth rate in the model.
0: Okay, cool. All right, so good. I'll tick. I'll accept that. I'll accept SA3. Happy days. Uh, so all <laughs> right, so so what all right, so so now that we've gone okay, forget about looking at suburbs. Forget about looking at LGAs. We want to look at SA3s. What do we want to look
1: for? Well, what if I could just maybe back up there. I always look at suburbs, but I start with the SA3.
0: Okay, got it. You start at the SA3 and then and
1: then zoom in and go down. And then and and in some cases we've got um, uh, scenarios where um, some buyers agents that I work with start with the SA3 and go through the property so they've got really two dimensions they're working finding the best property within the SA3 the sub is still part of that decision but you're not going through a sub level filter first so yeah.
0: do you think there's any benefit in that like like cuz i my, the way our our internal process works we've we've built our own our own methodology around all of this our, you know our process is firstly looking at a at a you know a national level or a state state macro level and then you know we look on an on an lga basis but i might tweak that up to an sa3 and we, we go step by step down 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 Perfect. and then look at the suburb and then look at the streets and we disqualify about you know 50 60 percent of suburbs sometimes so yeah. so do you think that that's a better approach or do you think it's like oh, if you get the sa3 right she'll be right off you go
1: I don't, I, I'd never go as far as a binary response. They're saying good or bad. You know, it, to me, it's these. these are all different approaches and some work in some situations. And got it. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it's, it's wrong to say that. Now, now having said that, I, I, I love the street level metrics. And when you design AVMs, just circling back to the AVM, the streets are major variable in your AVM yeah. methodology. So you never ever discount street and you can <laughs> easily, you can easily overpay. By buying in the wrong street
0: how, yeah i was going to say do, do you have any uh, in your opinion or experience your knowledge or whatever have any idea how much the right or wrong street could could
1: change the growth oh absolutely um now you've got you've always got that factor of price so does the does the lower decile rank move in sa- in similar lockstep of growth as the top decile rank um uh the probably the answer over the last 10 years is it doesn't um, now, that might be different in the next 10 years, but of the last 10 years, the winners have been the top decile bands.
0: Okay. Do you want to just throw that back in the landing terms,
1: right? Yeah, so, the most expensive, the rich are getting richer. The most expensive spots are the ones that have had the biggest growth. Is that is that universally applied? So, for example, you know, Val- Valcluse has a higher growth rate than Cooper Um, I would argue that, it's, it's again, on average, and it does vary... Um, of so course, I'm not, no one's no one's going to string you up here and hold you down. and Say you said this. If but I, if mean, I were to look, a- look at the, if I list down the highest ten-year growth rates, and I split them up by SA three, and I look at the median prices or the current average price for all of these areas, or I do the same thing by suburb, guess which ones are at the top of the tree? The one point five million dollar and above ones.
0: So can I just I just want to clarify: is that on total is that on uh, total dollar gain or percentage growth rate? So it's on,
1: it's on percentage growth rate. Interesting. Mm. Why? Well, I, it's just I, look. There's a few theories here. Uh, I would argue that the the wealthy are getting wealthier. You know that, that K recovery thing, it's mm. real. Um, I think a lot of these areas that are uh, very expensive. You picked on Volcluse. Uh, A lot of that SA3 area, which would be eastern suburbs north, if you look at the percentage total owned, uh, i.e. fully owned, if you go back to your ABS data, look at the percentage total owned. This is real wealth. This is, you know, old money. I'm assuming what you're implying there is a lot of it is wholly owned, not mortgaged. Correct. There's no, there's so a very high percentage of properties that have no encumbrance, no mortgage. It's fascinating because we live near, near
0: that area. And I've often walked around looking at these places, thought about the mortgages and I'm thinking. What mortgage? Yeah. I was always curious. I'm fascinated by that. Cause I was always like, okay, they either, God, they must be earning a lot just about to pay for the mortgage or, or they've, or they don't have a mortgage. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. All right. Okay. Well, what next? What should people be looking out for aside from trying to, trying to you know, look at that? So.
1: Yeah, so I, I like to, you know, the geographical um, area, the SA3 is my first thing. And then what do I look at? I look at, uh, I do like to look at the median trend, you know, the 10-year growth path. That's part of the whole thing. I, I like to look at that. But equally, my, my lead indicator and what I like to use is the inventory. So inventory uh, effectively tells me how many months of stock there are. So how is it calculated is the question. Uh, If you've got 100 listings and on average, uh, say you've got an average of 100 listings and on average 10 properties sell per month, 100 divided by 10, 10 months of inventory. So what we do is we look at the count of of, uh, total inventory per SA3, we look at that in absolute current terms, but we equally and importantly look at the trend. And we see if that's trending down. Typically, as a general guide, uh, anything below three months of inventory is a very, very tight market with a lot of upward pressure on price.
0: Okay, how do you how do you work that out? Not, you don't have to give away all your secret source. But I'm I'm curious because um, you know the way what you're essentially saying is, on, actually, clarify for me is what you're saying the same as supply risk analysis
1: i think it is i think that you know, it's just a different dimension on it yep. um, a lot of people get confused with um inventory and days on market mm. as well uh they are highly correlated um but uh, it's as a standalone metric i use inventory because it is the go-to throughout the united states so why that hasn't been adopted here as the industry standard I don't know. I can't there's, a lot, that. there's a lot of things we should
0: adopt here, like stuff like measuring the performance of a property, like with things like internal rate of return, cash on cash return, all this kind of stuff. We look at all these weird metrics like gross yield and stuff like that rather than going, okay, what's the actual return on my cash and thinking about these kind of stuff. So I think there's a lot that we could import. So, okay, so inventory levels. So days on market is like how long does it take to sell a listing? Yep. Inventory levels are. How many
1: properties are for sale, but also how many are going to be for sale? The theory is this. If no other property was listed for sale in that SA3 now, so effectively everything new was stopped. There was no new supply. How long would it take for me to clear out all of that inventory? Mm. So if I look at just the stuff that's for sale today, how long is it going to take me to clear it out and have zero properties for sale? that's the theory okay got it and
0: does that factor in uh f- future inventory does that factor in things like um building approvals like how much stock is coming onto the market because okay, it's all well so- and good it's all well and good to go okay there's 100 properties for sale right now but if next week if next week that the developers is going to start selling 500 more properties you know it could be Screwed for lack of a better term. So
1: building approvals um, and, you know, doing some time lags on your building approval data is one of those metrics that I love to use. So we feed those in that into the model. Equally, the population information as well. Mm. So the uh, ERP, I think they call it. So you're effectively looking at um, uh, population levels at an SA3 level. Uh, we're looking at building approvals at an SA3 level uh, plus an, a few other factors. So we throw all of that in. So there's some of the biggies. Um, that I look at. So, population, this is from a capital growth perspective. However, having said that, there's a lot of interaction between the rental market and capital market, right? I
0: was going now. to ask about that. Uh, I was going to ask about because our, our modus operandi, everything that we do and believe in, is based around getting cash flow positive properties in high growth areas, right? So, it's not just about going. Let's just find somewhere that's got high yield. It's going to be first. Is it a growth area? Secondarily, are we buying at the right time to get the right yields? Perfect. So, so I just want to make sure I've encapsulated this. So what we've talked about is SA three for like pop, so population. You're looking for a population movement, density up, down, all that good stuff. Yep. Then you're looking for uh, inventory levels. Yes. And then uh, the probably
1: the other big there's if i was simplified to there's a a few different approaches to the modeling if you apply a a one size fits all model to the country you can easily identify a handful of variables that that are the most important but we don't build a single model for the whole country we we use machine learning which then becomes a bit opaque and has different rules and different variables and uses different data in different circumstances so it's a Mm -hmm. it's a very but the best place to start, the simplicity, is to start with a model and talk about what are the what are the, the datas, data variables of interest that really matter to that model. And <clears throat> simplifying it, and I've got a, a bit of a list here. Um, we've covered off the inventory. I'm looking at my little cheat sheet here so I don't stuff up. But density is another one. So looking at um, uh, uh, population density has been an interesting one as well. So it's uh, a, a new one that I've thrown into my forecasting model. Uh, employment. I think we covered that one off. Or, or no, no, employment
0: sorry. by t- employment by type or total uh, employment volume, because that's a really no, interesting one, because employment is, by is. type can can indicate uh, economic diversity. And it economic does. So, you
1: know, I think it's 18 or 19 different categories of, of employment. That's really a, a, a big thing right now, especially with some of the regions that are uh, heavily reliant on uh, overseas travellers. Um, so you've seen tourism and accommodation, um, but equally, on the flip side of that, areas that have got a lot of people working in the medical sector, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, whatever, those that has been a standout and very strong metric as well. So, the the 18 or 19 different classifications of um, of, of profession is a biggie, um, and and but probably the the one that I, I do a lot of this data, you've got to almost kind of challenge it and say. Is, is it bad or is it you know, is it usable but bad? Mm. And I think unemployment data, you know, I think all it takes is I've got to work one hour a week or something, some ludicrous metric that says uh, I'm employed if I work one hour a week. It's nuts to ca- capture that. So right. I, I look at, obviously, you can capture how many people are working, how many people are looking for a job but not working, and you can look at population. You look at all of those things. Mm. Obviously, you can blend them and come up with an unemployment rate. But what I'm finding by and large is using the um, total people working uh, as, a, as a metric and then comparing that to population. That's a pretty...
0: That gives pretty you a total employment rate. So how many people are producing an income?
1: Yes. Yep. Okay. I'm sort of looking But I'd love to have down to, to an SA3 level or lower, I'd love to have um, hours worked. That would be, I think, Nirvana, but I am not. I don't have access to that. <laughs> Not yet,
0: not yet. Well, all right, what role does what role do um, you mentioned a moment ago about rents? What role does rents have in this? All of this, how to, how I know this, but how to how to articulate this in a way? What impact do rents have on property markets, growth, all of that kind of stuff?
1: It's interesting. What we're finding is some some new trends. We're finding that that with COVID, there's been a bit of a shift to people who are looking to move out of the city and into a region. And the first thing they're doing, they're renting. That's pretty
0: typical of anyone who goes anywhere. So if you've got a new – so, for example, if you have a, I don't know, a factory that opens up somewhere and it's going to employ another 1,000 people, they'll all go and rent
1: first before they buy, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, I think equally you've got a correlation between people who are being forced to rent because they can't find the property they want. So it wasn't planned. So there's a lot of that. So if you've got tight inventory, you're seeing – a lot of dynamics happening between tight levels of inventory and rent prices being pushed up mm-hmm. vacancy rates being pushed down because people can't find what they want so they have to rent mm-hmm. etc so there's some interesting dynamics happening but more than ever now i'm seeing the rental market connecting with the capital market and and a few ways that's happening pick on uh, units in melbourne Been in oversupply for some time you know we're talking thousands of properties that are three weeks vacant or more you know Um, that's having a a flow on effect uh, obviously so you've got areas where there's a high number uh, not not the don't look at the percentage for a minute but look at the count of properties that are vacant then you can start to kind of make sense of that and say wow if one in 10 of those landlords get sick of it they might list their property. And we're starting to see an uptick in that number of properties that are ex-rentals listed for sale. Mm. Is that driving That's driving prices down? Well, there's two things. So obviously you, you, it's driving rents down is probably the first thing it does because they try and get it rented, trying to get it leased. So the first thing you do is you lower your your rent and push it out there. But if you still can't get it rented, then what do you do? You, you're at that 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 Conundrum, you know? Mm-hmm. Do I flog it off and cut the losses? And you, I'm reading in some of the forums that people have got four or five properties all in and around uh, Melbourne, and they're just dumping them in one line. Unreal, unreal. Do, you,
0: do what's your opinion on the Melbourne market? Then, you know, do you? Yeah, tell me your opinion on where that market is going.
1: It, it's fascinating, and I think that the lockdowns—you've almost got to dilute whatever your opinion is because of the lockdown situation and 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 put a lot of your thoughts on pause but there are some some interesting trends that i don't think are going away i think the first one is um that it's starting to lose its heat and it was a hot 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 space driven by a lot of overseas um migration yep Um, so i think that's probably the bigger driver is that you know a lot of people coming here here from overseas and melbourne was their go-to you know, that was their, their, their place of choice. Um, so I'm seeing that. The data is saying that inventory levels are starting to build up. Still not there for houses. They're, they're, they're still fine, but they are. there's a significant step change up in, in, in Melbourne, greater Melbourne housing inventory levels. So that's probably the biggie. Um, and the flip side of that is a lot of the regions, the outer suburbs and outer regional areas in, in Victoria have done are doing well and have done well. Yep. so there's a couple of you know, key key metrics for me, but um, again, you'd almost want to wait. You, you, I, I wouldn't um, bet too early on on what's going to happen to Melbourne.
0: No, okay, fair enough. Do you think it's possible for people to predict? Like, if you have enough data, if you have enough data and enough machine learning, can, how can you actually accurately
1: predict the property market? I, I, I think it's a factor of time. <clears throat> so effectively, the longer time goes on, you know, you've seen how it fans out. You know, your error prediction fans out. <clears throat> so. You, the, so, effective, you're predicting a year out, you can do a pretty damn good job as long as the all things equal assumption holds. It stays oh, the same as long you know, as you don't suddenly get a coronavirus. Some crazy stuff happens. Like, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, and I wouldn't even, I'll keep on saying, you know, an example, war. Could there be a war up in the South China Sea or something? Um, you wouldn't even call that a black swan. It's a white swan. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's, it, it's, it's a possibility and it's, a possible, it. it's
0: a possible foreseeable potential event As opposed to something
1: completely A black swan, right? Yeah, yeah And COVID wasn't a black swan It was a white swan
0: Are you sure? Are you sure? How would you Why do you say that COVID was a white swan? Because like, uh, I, I would why? say a lot of people would disagree No, with no, that no the,
1: the reason I say it, it's not my saying Um, The guy who wrote the black swan Nassim, Nassim, Nassim Taleb Yeah, Nassim Taleb, yeah He was the one who said It's not a black swan. On
0: what basis? Was it just on the basis that, well, we kind of knew at some point there'd be a a, a pandemic?
1: Pandemic planning, game room planning was going on and has been going on for years. All you've got to do is Google what bill gates has been saying uh, well then what truly
0: like i I would suggest that there's probably some kind of war room game room planning for almost every type of event does that mean that if we can conceive it if we can conceive it's not a black swan
1: well and that's what the black swan is the story being um nobody knew other than the the indigenous australians nobody knew that a swan could be black until the europeans visited wa Mm. that's what a black swan is it's it's wa it's a
0: challenging concept though because as soon as we can conceive something then it can't be a black swan
1: yeah in theory and yeah you know, so but it, it's interesting because you know i say i'm i'm deeply embedded in that book because i just read it again over christmas because there was nothing nice. to do because it was raining all the time um so i'm i'm kind of pretty trapped in his mindset and and yeah and and his his view is that any of these forecasters we're all idiots we shouldn't be doing it because we don't we just don't know what the future holds
0: yeah it's an interesting one right because we we all want to try and see a little bit into the future and there's there's a lot you, you know we we always try and be as you know we want to be as accurate as we can what we are trying to say is Hey, based on what we know, this is what we think is going to happen. It's-
1: yeah, and, and and people will search for that person who will give them that prophecy. Yes, you know, they will look for those prophets and have done for thousands of years. So if I don't do it, someone else will take up that mantle. Yeah. Um. So you know, I, it might as well be somebody who who cares about accuracy and can talk to the nuances and the limitations of it.
0: Okay, great. Well, that's probably a good little because I know that you've um you by by the time this podcast comes out i think that you will have the top 20 regions to invest in in australia so you're obviously making two big calls because that part, a part of that is saying i believe i believe yeah. this is i believe that this is what's going to happen in the future right so you're yeah, a bit of yeah. a you're playing the role of the soothsayer to some degree so what insights can you share for i know it's not out yet because i've tried to buy it but uh, by, the time this come, by the time this comes out, people should be able to buy it. We'll have a link in the show notes to go oh, and check yeah. it out.
1: It's done. It's just been the typesetters and graphic artists Perfect. people are doing all their Right. O-
0: awesome. So if it's done, what yeah. what? Come on, so, so, come give us some biggest, give us some juice. What are the top
1: twenty? So, so look, there's the, the one that we've already leaked out that we like um, is is Sutherland Minai Heathcote as an SA three. So uh, uh, we've we've let that one out. We're talking to that one. Um, why do we like it it's 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 a a relatively affordable if we look at the affordability ratio it's one of our metrics that we are using we um so uh, affordability is how much of your as a percentage of household income how much of it's being spent on rent how much of it's being spent on mortgage yeah and relative to other sa3s around the country it's way up there it's looking good now what we can deduce from what's happening around is People got squeezed out of the eastern suburbs, so they went to the northern beaches. People are now squeezed out of the northern beaches because inventory's been tight for so long. Yep. They're now getting jack of that, and now what are they doing? <clears throat> they're coming back down the other side. Okay.
0: Okay, good. So I'm interested because what are the yields? What are the median yields in that area?
1: Yeah, off the top of my head, I would need to pull up a spreadsheet to give it, but they're, you know they're they're pretty good. So one, we we do a number of filters. Um, the yields look good but what you want to do is kind of look at a suburb level when you get into the yields and then equally what you want to do and be very careful of is um i we like to look at the three bedroom sale price median and the three bedroom rent price median so we're actually doing it by property if you do um, uh, yields usually are being applied at a suburb median for houses Mm. and a suburb median for rentals and the problem is um, that works when your property is at the median if you buy at the median and rent at the median the yield's okay <clears throat> so you need to try and deal with that
0: yeah so can you infer can you infer the property uh, value by the capitalization rate so for example if the average if the median rent in an area is 5% and you're buying a property that is yielding at 6% does
1: that infer that the property should actually be higher in value you can in the middle <laughs> yeah, you know, because what what it will mean is uh, it will it will be way out and not accurate for the more expensive properties. Okay. It will be way out and not accurate for the really cheap properties. So when you say
0: in the middle, you mean the sort of median in price? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Of, of, of national prices. Like, exactly. Know. So if you're kind of
1: looking at it as, as cap rates to derive, you know, from, from cash flow or, or yield, can I derive the capital value? Um, it will work in the middle. And it will start to get very wobbly and inaccurate at the tails.
0: Okay, can you can you sneak out another? Given that given that given that this uh, episode's coming out and a few, uh, you know, <laughs> sure, surely surely there'll be a couple more leaks. What can you sneak out? What can you let us know? So, because not everyone's not everyone's going to want to buy in and around Sydney for a variety of reasons: price, yeah. yield, well, all of that kind of stuff.
1: What I've done is I um, this is now I'm moving and just talking about forecast for inventory now. So I'm not talking about what we put in our Uh, the Property Nerds Investor Report, because it looks at a whole range of investment factors. If I just isolate and talk to capital value predictions and what I see is likely to happen, I'm just isolating. my. I've just finished a nice machine learning run with all of these new data sets and just finished it yesterday for the podcast today. So I've got a couple of of key things here. Uh, ACT is smoking hot. It's been hot for a long time, but it's still looking at just there. Just seems to be no end to its undersupply situation. Mm. So the ACT generally, and I've got a few areas. You know, if you look at the SA threes of uh, Belconnen, uh, Western Creek are in there. Uh, I think it's Gunggallin, Gung. I don't. Pardon me for not pronouncing it right. So, but the ACT generally, uh, Tuggeranong, etc. It's, it's just hitting it out of the park. So, so you,
0: isn't that too late in the cycle there,
1: though? Isn't it a little late? Well, it, it, it could be because you'll, you'll, you'll probably see that the ideal time to get in is when the tide's turning, obviously. Of course, yeah, of yeah. Um, but that doesn't always guarantee that it's not going to continue on. And the, the thing you've got with Canberra that's really interesting is a lot of the other economic variables, good, stable jobs constant demand so uh there's there's the undersupply situation looks to continue all the way through the next 12 months there so uh, there will be continued growth and people bidding up the price from my perspective
0: okay so that's a hot market that's likely to stay hot what about what what about one that's on the turn what about one
1: that's interesting um my little summary cheat sheet that i've got sitting up on my computer screen here doesn't do that. So I would normally trip over myself and go, um ah, but here's one I prepared earlier. WA's on the turn. Yeah, I would actually
0: go a little. Sorry to jump in there. We almost we almost can't buy in WA anymore. I would say it's past the turn. Like like to 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 the degree that we've been buying there for a few months now. Yeah, it's yeah. almost it's almost impossible to buy a well without going into some kind of crazy bidding war. So it almost say that's past the turn.
1: So I'd probably argue that Perth still, on average, is a balanced market. I wouldn't say it's an, uh, it's a, an extreme seller's market. I wouldn't say it's a buyer's market. I, I'd classify it more in that range that I normally classify. As a balanced yep. market. But, but what's changed is the inventory levels drop by about one and a half months. It's mm-hmm. really trending down. So I think that's that's a biggie. Um, uh, I think I mentioned that, you know, the Sydney beachside suburbs are, are all doing well and will continue to do well. Hobart, and then the other one that's, and Hobart's done well for the last few years. We know that, but COVID seems to really sh- turn, turn the heat up there. And the last one, and there is some bias here because I live in Newcastle, but Newcastle is, is doing well. problem that it's got is a lot of the people who are coming to try and buy in places like Newcastle are coming up on the freeway, missing out on properties and getting pissed off and then they disappear. Mm. So that's the challenge that it's got is it's just, you know, the quality available stock is not there for the type of buyers coming up from Sydney
0: interesting maybe they should think about using a buyer's agent that might help them
1: well, so. well you know t- time over again when i was the sydney side looking to buy up here i kicked myself and say i should have bought a buyer's agent yeah it's yeah. it's 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 such
0: a funny thing is right? it because we've talked about the u.s a little bit in this which comparing data yeah. but comparing like the the psychology of how to buy properties it's so different like over there it's basically 50 50 you're always you know almost always in a transaction you have a selling agent and a buying agent i mean over there they're sort of coagulated into just that they're just a realtor and so just whatever but i think it's so funny here that there's this there's still this this in cultural belief that um now nah, i'll just do it myself now nah, and and not valuing not only not valuing time but also you, you know as you said you get all this frustration you, you are going there not getting the deals and end up sacrificing quality of life and stuff like that because you end up buying somewhere just ad hoc
1: you buy ad hoc or you just take what you take what's available, and and you don't buy the optimal long term option. You you give up, um, and I think the buyer's agent will give you that, especially if you're moving out of town. Uh, so you know, without a doubt, the buyer's agent for an out of town buyer makes a lot of sense. I think though, as an industry, uh, it's got a long way to go to educate people. A long I, way to go to I think
0: business. it's exciting. I think it's a big. I think it's a big tra- cultural transformation that's happening in Australia. So yeah. yeah. Now, okay, so um. Well, I'm interested. You've obviously got a passion for all of this kind of stuff. What's what's your what's your big vision? Like, what are you what are you trying to achieve? I know you. I love spreadsheets, data. I I geek out on some. I it's, I spend my 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 free time just you know pouring through spreadsheets. I've downloaded a few from Suburb Trends and just you know geek <laughs> out on them and stuff like that as well. So I, I I get the enjoyment factor of digging through this kind of information, but you seem to be you seem to be trying to you know, you, you, there's a reason that you keep entering into new startup ventures and stuff. What are you trying to achieve? What's the goal? How did yeah. you change the change? How are you trying to change the world?
1: Look, I, I would like to be known as somebody who can help take something that's uh, difficult, hard to explain or opaque, and make it transparent and easy to understand. And the best way I can do that is through data visualization and good software products uh, packaged in communication. So that, that you know, so what I what I'd like to do is to help as many companies, how many businesses out there. There's a stack of startups at the moment that are working in prop tech, real estate technology, and whatnot. And I love helping them because the startup mentality is something that I'm just drawn to. I love these young, enthusiastic tech heads. I love the nerds, and if I can help them. With my catalogue of, of of errors, as I like to call it, you know, I've got twenty years of, of errors that are all indexed in catalogues that I can share with people. So don't do this, or if you do it, think about this error that I made. That's probably my opening thing, and then from there, just get excited with these people who are creating products and help guide them. You know, sometimes you make good money out of it. Sometimes you're doing it for love. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I
0: think uh, I think that's just the way. That's just the way of it, right? If you you've got to just you've got to love it, and then you know. Then it doesn't matter whether you're making money or not. You're, you're just doing the thing you love. So, yeah. Well, mate, there's been. I didn't even get through half of the things that I wanted to talk to you about uh, on this uh, let's, podcast let's episode. Let's do it again. Let's do it I again. think we're going to have to. I think we're going to have to. Like we've 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 gone in a few different directions, and there's about a thousand more that I want to go. So we might have to. Um, we might have to uh, get a bit more regularity. Uh, on here and start digging into. I'll have to try and. I can tell both of us get a little tangential so we might have to rein it in and really hit <laughs> specific topics for one episode and go deep on a specific topic but I've really I've really enjoyed this now if um, for the average punter out there, if they want to to get access to some of that gold that's digging around, bouncing around in that scon of yours, is the best bet to go to the property nerds? Because yeah. you said suburb, suburb trends yeah. is for enterprise. That's for
1: businesses. So if you're an investor out there or a buyer's agent out there and you want to kind of know or explore a little bit about what we've spoken about today, go to the property nerds. If you want to help me out, buy the report. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to to reading it when I get it. I'm I'm, I'm always looking to understand, to look at what, to to find new ideas about how to expand the way that I'm looking at our own research methodologies too. So Kent, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. And uh, let's do it again soon. Thank you, Goose.